0: If it ever was a secret, we move from Romans and go to the Old Testament. We go to the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you uh, are having any trouble finding it, go to Matthew. Turn a few pages back or one page back and you'll find it. Malachi, as I said, is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last prophetic voice coming from among all of the Old Testament prophets. And it's a prophetic writing that with its completion would begin a time in human history when all the written prophecies of the Old Testament would grow silent. No prophetic word, it seems, would be coming from God to guide his people from the time Malachi closes until the historic era surrounding the coming of the great prophet, our Savior Jesus Christ. Internal evidence from within Malachi would suggest to us that this prophetic word was written sometime in the mid 400s BC before Christ. That means that the time of this prophetic silence would have lasted for a period of time in the neighborhood of 450 years. And maybe knowing that fact should move us to see that there is a, is a historic importance to what Malachi says. It's the last words coming from the prophets. But then again, the mere fact that this word is coming to us through the voice of a prophet, but is still very much the word of God, should even more create in us an aura of importance to what is being said. It is the word of God. Generally, we attribute the authorship of this writing to a man named Malachi. But what's interesting is that the name Malachi is also a term that would mean my messenger. So it could be that this prophetic word of God is penned by an unnamed prophet who adopts the title my messenger to even identify more for his readers by that title my messenger that what we are about to read is a message not from man but a message from God. God's word, God's message to God's people. We'll begin to read this short work of prophecy this morning by reading the first five verses of the first chapter. And then once we've done that, we'll consider some of the things more generally about the writing of Malachi as a whole, and then narrow in more directly on what these few, few verses actually tell us. And so with that, I'd ask if you would pray with me, and then we'll read together Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's pray, and then we'll read. Lord, what an amazing truth it is that you speak to your people. You speak to us through your word, a word that has been preserved over millennia of time so that when we read, we can see your will for us. Lord, sometimes our ability to see gets clouded by our own sinfulness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be the one who directs our eyes by your spirit to your word to enlighten us. We ask, Lord, that as the, the preacher preaches, that his words would be your words, guided by what is true and what is right, so that his human error would diminish and your truth would rise all the more. Lord, we need your word. Your word is a powerful force in our lives through the Spirit. And so, Lord, guide us through this text, through the whole of this prophetic work. And please, Lord, do that beginning today by enlightening us to these first five verses. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we read verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel By Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. As a pastor, I have said to some people on more than a few occasions that although I am a minister, I have no particular right as a man to speak into your lives, my fellow human beings. My human opinions of what you should do with your life and in your life have no higher innate value than your own opinions or the opinions of any other person. And that's true no matter how odd I might think another person's opinions might be. Yet having said that, the one who does have an unrestricted right, every right to speak into your existence, is your God. He is your maker. He is deserving of all your loyalty, all of your obedience. And so while as a minister and elder I have no particular human authority, as a minister of God, when I preach or shepherd true to what God has said, When I speak His words, speaking into circumstances of your lives, you would be wise to listen. Wise to listen because it's not my word, because it's God's word, His word. You know, really that's what ministry is all about. All about whether that ministry is through the preaching coming from a pulpit or in any one-to-one discussion. When the word of God is declared to you, it is And when it is a true declaration of his word, when it is applied to any circumstance in which you live, it should be heeded and heeded for one reason alone, because God has spoken, because it is his word, because he is the one who speaks into your lives. And the reason I begin today by saying these things, the reason I say these things this morning is because It really is so essential for us to know that whenever we read from any part of the Word of God, God's Word is meant to be life-directing, often life-changing. As I said, Malachi means my messenger. This is God's messenger speaking to you. This is the message of God. And what we find as we read through this prophetic work as we read through it in the weeks that will lie ahead of us, is that there will be challenges. There will be challenges to us in our life practices, especially as people of God who belong to him through Christ. And when we find ourselves most challenged by the words of Malachi, we will do well, most well, to remember that the words are indeed God's authoritative words given to us we would do well to submit to whatever God has said and particularly to do so if we are finding God's message somewhat difficult for us to live by, to follow. And I say that to us this morning, that to us today, even as we well realize that Malachi was written two and a half millennia ago. We sometimes want to think that when we read words written so long ago that they were for those times, not for our times. And it is true that in the most immediate sense, the words of the prophets of the Old Testament are always written in the first case for their own surrounding culture, the times in which they lived. The prophets were initially writing to their own contemporaries and trying to awaken them in their age to their God and to the will of God for them. But we should always know, always know that in many ways, those original readers, the original readers of the prophets were very much a people just like us. Of course, we live further advanced in time. We have these newer blessings of many life-altering inventions. We travel in automobiles and jets and not so much on foot. We have new technologies Uh, We have uh, masses of information at our fingertips. We have running water and flushing toilets. But whether a people lived in ancient days or in modern times, we still also share so many commonalities. Our sinfulness, for example, and the roots of our sinfulness are not different from those of ancient days. And of course, in any era, in any era of time, our God always remains constant. We could compare our individual histories and our corporate histories with that of an older time period. And we would do that and we would find differences, but in both ages of time, we still see that we have histories that influence us and shape us and direct our lives. And in any age we have experienced that those sometimes draw us nearer to God and sometimes act as if they are trying to pull us away. And so when exploring prophetic writings like that of Malachi, we would do well to do so with a knowledge that we can learn much from the past age. Because in many ways, we just might not be so different from Malachi's first audience. But because we are bringing those teachings of Malachi through the portals of time and into our own age, it's also helpful for us to at least know a little, a few of the basics about the people of that time so that we can better then bring those lessons learned from Malachi through history and into our own lives as we try to learn from the past. So, know this, my friends. Malachi was written to a people who had returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding region of Judah in order to rebuild a city and nation that had one time been so great but has since that time been razed and ruined. If you know the history of ancient Israel, you know that under kings like David and Solomon that that kingdom of Israel had grown according to human standards to a a greatness and power Almost beyond imagination. Israel at a time long prior to Malachi had been a most influential people. But the greatness of that that one-time great nation was now long gone by the time that Malachi wrote these words. That once great kingdom had divided in two. As time had passed, they would become subject to attacks from enemies, great and powerful enemies... Assyrians would invade, Babylonians would invade and eventually with the passage of time that great city of Jerusalem had been laid to waste and Solomon's temple, the great temple that stood in that city the place that was built to house the glory of God it had been destroyed and the people of Jerusalem and Judah had been taken away from a land that had been promised them by God And they went into a state of exile. That was part of the corporate history of the people to whom Malachi was now writing. But that history was also past. The history of the exile was in bygone days. The once exiled people after the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians were eventually allowed by the Persians to return to their former homeland. They would go back to Jerusalem. The temple that had been destroyed would be rebuilt. The walls of the city would be restored. That is the situation of these people to whom Malachi first was writing. But in spite of that return, in spite of that rebuilding, the spirit of the returned exiles was still low. You see, the number of Israelite people in that region were still Few. They were were but a shadow of the population of Jerusalem at its greatest. The rebuilt city could not match the city's prior grandeur. The new temple was but a shadow of the once amazing temple built by Solomon. The presence of God with them had seemed to be absent because now they were not what they once were. They were a vassal state and an insignificant vassal state as that, a vassal state of the larger, greater Persian empire. That's the audience to whom Malachi is first writing. They are people maybe with some historic sense that their exile was really brought about by the hand of God, not truly by invaders. They were a people maybe that had a sense that God had allowed them to return to Jerusalem, though obviously his will was to return them to this lesser and weaker state and they seem to be a people throughout this prophetic work who though they have some sense of who God is feel alienated from him and they are living in many ways as people opposed to his will there has been in these resettled peoples a disregard for God's law there's been a degeneration in the work of the priest. There are problems in marriages. There are people neglecting the good of the Old Testament church. People engaging in sin and laying excuses before God for their sin. And it's into a group of people like that that God brings the first words of this message. I have loved you. I have loved you. What beautiful words those should be to hear from God. I have loved you. And what a horrible answer, an insolent answer for God to hear back from his people. They say, how? How have you loved us? I can't erase from my mind an image of a father disciplining a child. A child has engaged in, in some mischief. You choose whatever mischief that comes to your mind. The father meets out a punishment and as part of that correction, he sends the child off to her room to cool off a bit, to think about her mischief, mischievous deeds and, and to think about that discipline that he has chosen. And then after a short while, the father enters her room to speak to his daughter and to let her know that the discipline he has chosen has been chosen out of love. You can almost hear that little girl say something like, Daddy, Daddy, you're punishing me. How is that love? The father knows what any good parent knows. Correction and discipline are for the child's good. It's a most loving parental act to help form the child into a child of honor and character through discipline. But the child sees the restriction, maybe feels a paddling, and wrongfully becomes blinded to the love behind it. How have you loved me? Do you sense that same sort of tone in this disputation with God in this first part of Malachi? Malachi? God says, I have loved you, and the child of God replies, how? How God have you loved me? You know I really think the key to understanding all of Malachi is to sense that the loving of God includes his disciplining hand. Proverbs 3:11 through 12 says, my son, do not despise The Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. Hebrews 12 introduces a painful experience happening among the recipients of that letter. And it says in Hebrews 12, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And the author of Hebrews, he then quotes that proverb and he says, It is for your discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For those first readers of Malachi, God brings a message of his love, a love being shown to a people who are wayward, who are not feeling love because of the trials they have endured as they feel God's discipline. And so they respond to the message from God, the first message in this prophetic work, I have loved you. A message that should be music to any sinful ear. And they do it with a response that seems to have failed to understand. They say, how? And God answers. But knows he doesn't answer by saying what I just said. He doesn't directly hear explain that his action is for their discipline. He also doesn't recite the proverb, the word that is pronounced elsewhere. And God through Malachi doesn't recite either a list of of everything else that this people might have thought to be exhibitions of God's love that they did know. He doesn't say, remember what I've done for you. He doesn't say, I brought you out of Egypt, I parted the Red Sea, I brought you to this promised land, I allowed you to enter it and occupy it, even though the the occupiers of it before you were strong and powerful and had fortified cities. He doesn't say to this people, think about your more recent past. How do you think those Persians became so merciful to allow you to return to this city? How have I loved you? God doesn't respond at this juncture, with any explanation of his loving discipline, nor does he respond by cataloging or listing what the people from Malachi's era would have known to be his acts of love, his acts of kindness. Instead, what God says here, in answer to this question, how have you loved us, is to say to these people, I have loved you, By making you mine. That's what God essentially is saying when he answers the question, How? By saying, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, the forefather of all Israel, but Esau I have hated. It wasn't so long ago that I was standing up here and engaging with these very words. Doing so because the Apostle Paul turned to these words about Esau and Jacob to explain the way God chooses his people to be his people in Romans 9. We saw then, I remind you now, that Esau and Jacob were brothers, twin brothers. And God would choose Jacob over Esau. Jacob, the younger of the twins, would have his name changed by God to Israel As I said, he would become the father of all the national people of Israel. The other son, the older son, Esau, would become the nation of Edom. But the nations they become begin first with these two infant boys. They were boys for whom God had differing plans. Differing plans even while they were still in the womb of their mother and yet unborn. That differing destiny for each child was somehow determined for them. It was something determined for them by God while they were still unborn and before either one of them had ever done anything good or bad. And in a sense, the love of God for Jacob is explained by Malachi, the messenger of God, by focusing not so much on the way God showed his love to Jacob, but on the way he shows his hate towards Esau and the Edomites. God laid waste to Esau's hill country. God left Esau's heritage to the jackals of the desert. If later surviving Edomites were to say, we are shattered, but will we build the ruins? The Lord of hosts says, They may rebuild, but all tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry and angry forever. Here in Malachi, the sense of being one hated by God is one that suggests a rejection of God that is final and wrathful and irrevocable. But at the same time, at the same time, that hatred by God is not capricious or spiteful as human hate often is. God's hatred is a holy hate. It's a holy wrath against all that is unholy. It's his just condemnation of sinners by justly treating them strictly and by visiting upon the sinner the judgment their sin deserves. That's what's involved in God's hatred of Esau. That's what it means to be hated, unloved by God. The sinner is turned over to the just consequence of his own sin. And you almost have to have that holy hatred in your mind to understand more fully what it means to be loved by God. To be loved as Jacob was loved. The question itself. How have you loved me? Is a question rooted in sin. It is a challenge. in Whether God really did love his people. Thus it's rooted in sin. And then when we start reading on in Malachi. We see the sin of the loved descendants of Jacob. Even more fully. But having the love of God bestowed upon the sinful person means that if that person truly belongs to God, he or she will not be receiving what the likes of Esau will receive. Jacob is loved and Esau is hated, even though both are sinful and the lines of their descendants are sinful. probably best that I remind you of something else Paul wrote about when explaining this part of Malachi in Romans 9. He said, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. His point was that not every one of the people that come from Israelite ancestry was part of the Israel of God. Outwardly, being born into a nation group, Or being born into a particular family is not what makes one part of God's covenant family. The one whom God chooses are those whom God chooses. Just as he chose one twin and not the other. How have I loved you? I've loved you by choosing you to be mine. Think back again to that image of a human father, the father who is disciplining his daughter. She asks the father, Father, how do you love me? And if you can imagine the father responding to the question, not by cataloging the instances of his actions that she would call loving, and not by explaining how his discipline of her is out out of an act of love for her, Though each one of those those explanations would define his love. But this hypothetical father instead, what he does is to wrap his arms around his little girl and hold her tight. And he says to her, I love you. And because she has this union with her father although she is asked this question that suggests she is untrusting at a moment of his love. He speaks of his love and her distrust starts to melt away in the arms of the loving parent. And I think that maybe an image like that one maybe helps a bit. God holds on to his adopted children by saying in his word, I love you. So that when they have doubts, those doubts would start to evaporate. Maybe that image of a human father, a good human father, is one that helps. But I also have to remind, remind you, it is so imperfect. When God sets his love on his child of faith, it is a love that without, is without any wavering the image of any loving human father, even the best of human fathers, is still fraught with the understanding that fathers falter at times. Tempers are lost. Unwholesome anger festers. And it happens more and more, the more frequent the sins of the child are repeated and repeated and adversely weigh upon the father's own human sinful heart. The human father, you see, is also an imperfect sinner. So his love never quite ever appropriately portrays with exact precision the love of our heavenly father. Our heavenly father has loved us even when we haven't loved him. His love is lavished upon sinful creatures who are unlovely. Remember, please remember that he has loved us even though our sins are what has nailed, what have nailed his righteous son to the cross. Upon the cross to receive the outpouring of the father's wrath, that the words that are written by Malachi regarding Esau only in a slight and insignificant way begin to describe I have loved you, says the Father. And that love is so deep and it's so strong that he would not spare his own son for the sake of the creatures that he's loved, unlovable creatures that he's loved. And we would do well to not only know that love intellectually, but to remember that God has spoken of it and spoken of it and spoken of it both here and elsewhere in the Word, so that we sense, even in those times when we might be wondering, How is it that God has loved me? that our understanding of His love would not fade from us. Sometimes our lives, sometimes they are lives that seem to be in great turmoil. Sometimes our sin weighs heavy upon our souls. Sometimes our relationship seems broken and unfixable. Sometimes the trials we face in regard to our health or our losses of our loved ones or the burdens of on our loved ones. All of those types of things might cause us to want to cry out to God, how have you loved me? And we need to hear words from his word that simply reaffirm to us, I have loved you. You are mine. I'm loving you even in this moment and through this moment that you are feeling most burdened. I have to go back to Romans once again. Go back to the end of Romans chapter 8, which finds Paul, a messenger of God, reminding us all that having been brought by the Holy Spirit to Christ because those whom God knows he also predestines, After we read that, we then read that we can also be assured of this. That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, none of it will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My prayer for us all is that it may be that with every passing day, that through every trial of life, every trouble in life, that we will be more consistent in remembering that for those God has called, he is also saying, I have loved you. I I have loved you with a love that conquers your sin. I have loved you with a love that grants you eternal life. I have loved you with a love that can never separate you from me no matter what you experience. I have loved you, God says. And may we respond by just basking in that truth, the love of God, our Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we as always thank you for your word. We thank you that you are our teacher through it by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that we would be more assured of your love with every passing day. Knowing that you have said it is so. Knowing that you have shown us it is so. You have not spared your own son. Love, your love, is shown to us in the way you have called us to be yours. May we never forget it. And may it change the way we live in this world as we await the day of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. We'll close about.